Bonjour et bienvenue à tous et à toutes. Hello there and welcome one and all to City Breaks Paris, episode 3, Two Cathedrals, Notre Dame and Saint-Denis. Of course, of course, we must have an episode on Notre Dame, truly a symbol of Paris that's sitting majestically there in the middle of the Ile de la Cité, right in the heart of the city. It was, until it was being closed for the fire, Paris's most visited site, 14 million visitors a year. And I think if you saw the TV pictures on the night of the fire, with ordinary Parisians flocking to see what had happened, you would have been reminded, yet again, how important this building is to everyone who loves Paris. Fortunately, of course, it had a pretty miraculous escape, as in most of it is still standing, but it's going to be closed for several years. I think, though, that we really should devote an episode to it, because of its central role in the history of Paris, and indeed of France. I don't know if you know that when you're anywhere in France, if you're on a route nationale, one of the A roads, if you see a sign to Paris, so many kilometres away, they are measuring that exactly to the bronze plaque in the paving stones just outside Notre Dame Cathedral. However, there is a second cathedral in Paris, equally splendid, but much less well known. So I'm proposing to cover that one here too. And that is the Basilique Saint-Denis. Absolutely a centre of French history. All but three French kings are buried there. I think every single French queen is buried there, some 70 monarchs in total. And it's a glorious building, both the building itself and the lovely statues inside. And since the Basilique Saint-Denis is very slightly older than Notre Dame, it was begun in 1137, as against 1163, then I think I'll start, in fact, with the Basilique Saint-Denis. It's called that after Saint-Denis, St. Denis, who was the first Bishop of Paris and about whom there's a legend which explains why it was that they chose exactly this site to build a cathedral to him after his death. Denis, or Denis if you prefer, lived a very long life in the 3rd century. This was during the period of Roman occupation of Paris. He converted people to the Christian faith. He founded many churches. The Romans didn't think much of this, but they left him alone until such time as he was a hundred years old, at which point they decided that perhaps they would tackle him. I'll let Robert Cole, author of A Traveller's History of Paris, explain what happened. Quote, he was beaten, placed on a grill in a furnace, given to hungry lions and hung from a cross. Amazingly, he survived this abuse and was beheaded on Mons Martis, soon to be changed to Mons Martyrum, the Mountain of the Martyrs, in his honour, from which we get the modern-day Montmartre. The night before his execution, angels administered the holy sacrament to him through his cell window, which seemed to endow Dennis with unusual powers. The next day, after his head was struck off, he rose, picked up the head, and went with it to a stream where he washed it. That done, he proceeded a further five miles to the village of Catalacus, the site of the present basilica of Saint-Denis, where he died. And so it was decided to build a cathedral right on that very spot where he died, in his honour. At that time, it was at the cathedral in Reims, or Reims as we call it in English, where kings and queens of France were crowned, but it wasn't long until this new cathedral at Saint-Denis became a rival. I think it was really because it was much closer to Paris. It soon became tradition that when the medieval kings of France were setting off on a battle, they would set out from here, a great flurry of people on horseback and foot soldiers, all led by the king, riding ahead, bearing the abbey standard for protection of Saint-Denis in the battles that they were off to fight. 
It's so easy to get lost in the detail. I'm hoping not to do that, but I would like to talk about two or three incidents which took place in this cathedral over the centuries, just to give a picture of how important it's always been. So starting with 1389 then, we have descriptions of some of the grand ceremonies organised by Charles VI when he had some new knights to welcome to his cause. So there'd be a week of celebrations, everybody would wear the king's colours and the new knights would all have to pledge their allegiance to the king. The whole thing would start off with a dubbing ceremony held actually in the church, so that marked their entry into knighthood. Then of course there'd be the obligatory feasting, so a massive banquet, a ball, several days of tournaments and jousting, and finishing up then about a week later with a final grand mass. Skipping forward 120 years or so to 1515, there are some quite colourful descriptions of the coronation of François Ier, so Francis I, which took place again in the cathedral at Reims, but which then moved to the Basilique Saint-Denis in Paris for a really ostentatious display and celebration. Robert Cole again describes this very nicely, telling us how all sorts of important people, parliament members and guild wardens and all sorts, met the king at Saint-Denis so that all of them could process into Paris together to make a show of strength and celebration on the occasion of his coronation. So this is how he describes what happens. Quote, the Jean de Ville went first, and then the Jean du Roi, wearing various royal insignia, and the marshals of France, the Grand Master, the gentlemen pensioners, all decked out in cloth of silver and gold. The great seal followed, accompanied by Chancellor Duprat, pages, musicians and heralds, led four gentlemen, bearing, in turn, the king's hat, cloak, sword and helmet, followed by various of the royal household. Finally, there was the king himself, on horseback, wearing a suit of silver cloth and a bejewelled white hat, and throwing gold and silver pieces to the crowds lining the streets. Needless to say, they cheered. Two companies of the saint Gentium, the household troops, and four hundred archers followed the king. Interestingly, the whole lot were on their way to Notre-Dame for yet another Thanksgiving Mass, so that highlights the fact that these two cathedrals, Saint-Denis and Notre-Dame, had twin roles to play. Another important event took place in 1593. This time it was Henri IV, so Henry IV, who was in fact not quite a king at that point. He was hoping to be, but the problem was he was a Huguenot, so a Protestant, and this wasn't going down well with everybody, and in the end he decided he would accept Catholicism so that they would accept him as their king. And it was here in the Church of Saint-Denis that Mass was heard and that the king was seen to kneel among the tombs of all his predecessors as a sign that he would be their king and be, importantly, a Catholic king. He wasn't crowned here either. He was crowned at Chartres. And I think the whole thing is best remembered, perhaps, for a much-quoted phrase which he said to have used at the time when asked whether he was really willing to convert to Catholicism in order to be king, he apparently gave as his answer the words, Paris is worth a mass. He'd go through with it if it meant he could rule in Paris. In common with so many other churches, Saint-Denis had a very difficult period during the French Revolution. It was ransacked, it was desecrated, the lead roof was torn off, it was left standing open for several years after that, which of course did a lot of further damage to the inside. It was decided that it wouldn't be used as a church anymore. The revolutionaries didn't want that, being very anti-religious. And so it became a storehouse, chock full of wheat and sacks of flour. 
the Abbey community was disbanded. But before they left, some quite astute people did manage to save quite a few of the monuments. They took them out and put them into hiding somewhere. Only 15 years later, 1805, when Napoleon was at the height of his glory and power, he took really quite an interest in Saint-Denis. He decreed that it would be the place where he and what he hoped would be all of his dynasty would be buried. As we know, of course, now that didn't happen, but that's what he was intending. And to show his interest in the building, he had no fewer than three chapels built in memory of various previous royal families. He very much wanted the French people to see him as just as important as all the monarchs that had gone before, as following on from them, if you like. The cathedral's own guidebook's quite amusing on this. It points out that they think Napoleon was, quote, thereby hoping to set his reign within the continuum of history. Of course, as we know, Napoleon didn't last forever, and from 1814 there was the restoration of the monarchy, and at that moment it was decided to bring the remains of poor Louis XVI, who of course was the king who'd been beheaded in the revolution, and whose remains had been thrown pretty carelessly into a grave somewhere near the Madeleine Church, they were found, they were transferred here to Saint-Denis in a great ceremony and reburied, alongside the remains of his wife, Marie-Antoinette, who had also been executed a few months after Louis himself. It's definitely one of the things you'll look at, I think, if you go round, is the lovely marble statue of the two of them. In fact, this was the beginning of the end of the royal connections with the church, because the last king to be laid to rest here was Louis Eighteenth and that was only 10 years later, in 1824. The rest of the 19th century saw the Basilique being much less important, really, falling out of favour a bit, being ignored. didn't help that it had a new spire constructed, which was struck by lightning and collapsed, and then that the second spire that was built to replace it also collapsed under its own weight about 30 years later. Massive saga, the architect was sacked, even though he'd spent 30 years on the project. And really, people weren't talking so much about the Basilique Saint-Denis. It actually officially became a cathedral in 1966, when it was finally realised that the centuries of history in the building should be recognised. Lots of excavations took place, thousands of tombs were unearthed, and it's since then, really, that it's become a site that people visit. So then, what to see when you get there? Just a few pointers. I think, really, the very first thing you notice as soon as you go inside is how absolutely beautiful the building itself is. Huge stone arches reaching skywards, a really harmonious feeling to the whole building. It's not one of those cathedrals where everybody's had a say and put their own extra bits here, there and everywhere. You're just really aware of these lovely stone vaults and of the beautiful stained glass windows. Right back in 1140, when it was finished, the abbot at the time, one abbot Suger, declared himself very happy with how it worked, writing the following, quote, The entire sanctuary is pervaded by a wonderful and continuous light entering through the most sacred windows. So that's definitely the first thing, this general lovely atmosphere. And pretty soon after that, as you move into the body of the church and towards the back, the other really memorable feature is again to be found all over the building, and that is the 70-plus statues and tombs of the kings and queens of France. It's said to be a unique collection of funereal art and, as you wander around, really just a lovely, calm atmosphere. It's not a heaving cathedral like Notre Dame 
normally is, or indeed many other cathedrals in capital cities, it's quieter and you can wander around and really feel the history of a millennium and more. Although it was built in the 1160s, in fact, there had been tombs of monarchs on the site in centuries before that, and others which were moved there when it was finished. So really, to me, it's a place to wander and to wonder. You won't be able to take in all the details of who was who, unless you've done weeks of reading beforehand. But if you just meander through, have a look here and there, you definitely will be very taken with a sense of history around you, I think. And you can use the word wondering, both senses of the word there, I think. It is an amazing sight, but also one that sets you thinking. What were these people actually like? who lived so many centuries ago and were buried here with such reverence. If I read you a few selected names of some of the early monarchs who are here, I think you'll get the atmosphere just a little bit. So, for example, there's Pépin le Bref, known in English as Pépin the Short. And then, rather wonderfully, there's Berthe au Grand Pied, so Bertha with the big foot, Louis le Gros, I imagine he was tall, Philippe le Hardy, I guess he must have been brave, and, most poignantly of all, perhaps, a tiny little statue of a child lying down, labelled Jean le Posthume, John the Posthumous, who was the son of Louis X, who died aged only five days in November 1316. The Queen's too, a whole range of lovely names, Hermentude, Constance, Isabelle d'Aragon, Marie de Brienne. And I've picked out just three of the monarchs, who are names that perhaps you'll come across in other contexts in Paris or elsewhere in France, and who have particularly lovely statues there that you're perhaps going to want to go and seek out particularly. The first one is François Ier, so Francis I, he whose coronation procession from this very building we were talking about a minute or two ago. And he, in common with quite a lot of the other people buried here, has a tomb here which is double-layered, on the bottom layer, there are statues of him. In fact, it's a double tomb as well. It's for him and his wife, Claude de France. And on the lower level, there are statues of them dead. And on the top level, a family grouping, white marble of the two of them and three of their children. François Ier was one of France's very gallant, chivalrous kings. One said to have been much more respectful of women than many other monarchs or indeed men of his time and one also known as a great patron of the arts. He, for example, took Leonardo da Vinci under his wing for a period of time. A second very stunning set of statues belongs to Henri II, Henry II, who was in fact François Ier's son, and to the wife of Henri II, Catherine de Medici. Henri married one of the Medici girls from Florence. And they have, again, a double memorial tomb, on the top, gorgeous black marble statues of Henri and Catherine at prayer. And on the bottom, white marble statues, which are really a bit macabre, shows them as corpses, complete with worms and shrouds, if you look closely enough. And very much a memorial to both of them. Catherine reigned with Henry as his queen consort for 12 years, but then she reigned alone as regent for quite a few years after that. And in fact, three of her sons became kings of France. And then thirdly, the must-see really, I think, the statue to Louis XVI and his wife, Marie-Antoinette. This one has its own special chapel and life-size white marble statues of both of them, which are, I'm guessing, perhaps the most visited part of the cathedral. There's a rather gory postscript to that, actually, because elsewhere down in the crypt, 
There's a plaque on the wall to their son, also Louis, who was the Dauphin, so the king-in-waiting. He would have been king after the death of his father if it hadn't been for the revolution. He died as a child only a few years after the execution of both his parents, and it was thought that his body had been found, but it was never totally sure until, would you believe, 2003, when DNA tests were done on the body and also on a lock of hair known to have been Marie Antoinette's, his mother's, and it was decided that, yes, this really was him. And once he'd been formally identified, it was decided that his heart would be sealed up in a glass jar and put on display in the crypt of this church here at Saint-Denis, just beneath the plaque to him. I don't know whether you think that's fascinatingly interesting or whether you just think it's macabre, but I can tell you that this idea of dividing up the body after death was in fact not a particularly unusual one. In the 12th and 13th centuries particularly, if the monarch died a long way from Paris, which of course quite often happened if he was off fighting a battle somewhere, then it was a usual practice to strip the body of its flesh, perhaps by boiling it, so that only the bones needed to be transported back to Paris, which of course in the days of long journeys meant a solution to the problem of, as the guidebook so nicely puts it, putrefaction. In 1299, one of the popes issued a decree saying he was really very much against this, but it didn't stop people doing it, and there are examples of monarchs who actually stipulated in advance that this was exactly what they wanted to happen. Take Charles V, for example, who died in 1380 and had his body laid to rest at Saint-Denis, here in Paris, but his heart in Rouen, and even more bizarrely, his entrails were buried at the Abbey of Maubuisson, because that's where his mother was buried, and he wanted a little piece of himself to be there too. You can say too that not everybody liked this idea, so we have, for example, evidence from Isabeau de Bavière, who died in 1435. She was the wife of Charles VI, and she left particular instructions that they were not to do any of this to her. She wanted to be buried, she said, in the earth, quote, whole, without division, opening or incision, whatever. So I hope I haven't put anyone off their cup of tea with all these gory details. What I can tell you is that if you go out to Saint-Denis, get off the metro at the Basilique Saint-Denis, and you're literally one or possibly two minutes walk from the cathedral, you'll be stunned by its beauty both outside and particularly inside its lovely, calm, tranquil atmosphere. So then, let's turn our attention to Paris's other cathedral, the resplendent Notre-Dame, sitting on Ile de la Cité, as I've seen it described as, quote, a great and majestic ship. Definitely a symbol of Paris. Something you'll want to see, even if you go over the next few years, when you can't get inside. So, in this section, I think let's have a little bit of history, gain some key events that happened inside, a little bit on what to see if when you can actually get inside eventually, although of course that's a work in progress at the moment, because we're not quite sure what they're going to do with it. I think if I have to speculate, I would be surprised if the final version of Notre Dame that resurfaces after the Restoration didn't keep most of the history and tradition. That wouldn't be very French. But I'd also be surprised if there weren't some kind of startling, new, possibly rather shocking addition. That would be very French too, wouldn't it? If you think of some of the buildings that went up in the late 20th century, a lot of those were very keen to make their mark with how modern and different they were. Starting perhaps with um, Beaubourg, that large rectangular, some would say monstrosity, put in the middle of the old Les Halles district, 
with, as I think I've seen it described, all its entrails on the outside. So all those red, blue and yellow pipes transporting water and electricity about. Then think of the pyramid built outside the Louvre, again seen by many as rather shocking and a bit too modern for that context. Or the Arche de la Défense, when it was decided to extend the Grand Axe, which went from the Louvre to the Arc de Triomphe. The idea was to extend it out to the west, to La Défense, with a third archway in line, nothing remotely ancient-looking, massive white, looks plastic, I'm sure it isn't, archway, very modern. Or think about the Bastille Opera as well, absolutely, totally much more modern than the original Paris Opera. Anyway, watch this space, we'll find out when it opens in the mid-2020s what they do to Notre Dame. If I wanted to be cynical, I'd go for the guess that there'll be a silhouette of President Macron somewhere, but perhaps I shouldn't say that. Anyway, a history. Begun in the mid-12th century, on holy ground which had been used by the Druids and the Romans and others before them, and on which also there'd been a previous cathedral, the Cathedral Saint-Étienne, St. Stephen's Cathedral. But this one was the one that was going to be built to last, and it was begun under the stewardship of one Bishop Souilly. A massive project, stone brought by boatloads and barges to Paris from the provinces, hundreds of stonemasons engaged to build the blocks and put up the columns, a whole load of master masons as well to do all that lovely lace-like carving on the traceries, hundreds of decorative statues made, a whole army of carpenters to do the scaffolding and the roof beams. A massive undertaking. Here is Robert Cole again from The Traveller's History of Paris giving us just a little idea on how long it took and what a tremendous achievement it all was. Quote, the cornerstone was laid in 1163 by Pope Alexander III. The remainder required two centuries to complete. The choir, 170 feet long by 157 wide and 100 feet high, was finished in 1182. The ceiling is vaulted, supported by pillars, transverse arches, triangular ribbing, the effect of which is both practical and pleasing to the eye. Four tiers of stained-glass windows bathe the interior in sapphire, ruby, emerald and topaz-coloured light. Light was essential to Bishop de Suy, for he believed it symbolised the fundamental uplifting truth of Christianity. Finally completed then in 1345, at which point it was the tallest building ever known to man, and it was dedicated at its opening to Notre-Dame. Our Lady. So, mention of a couple of key events which have taken place under its roof, starting with one which took place in 1455. 24 years after Joan of Arc was burned to death, a retrial was held right here in Notre Dame Cathedral, requested by various legal types and also, very poignantly, by Joan's mother, one Isabelle Romé, and she it was who, on November the 7th, 1455, opened the retrial with a speech which began as follows. I had a daughter, born in lawful wedlock, whom I had furnished worthily with the sacraments of baptism and confirmation, and had reared in the fear of God and respect for the tradition of the Church. Yet although she never did think, conceive, or do anything whatever which set her out of the path of faith, certain enemies had her arraigned in religious trial, in a trial perfidious, violent, iniquitous, and without shadow of right did they condemn her in a fashion damnable and criminal, and put her to death very cruelly by fire. 
You really feel for the poor lady, don't you? The trial lasted six or seven months. A whole range of witnesses were called, over a hundred, tribunal members, villagers from her home village, soldiers who'd served under her in their campaigns, all sorts of people. And the final analysis was that Joan had indeed been a martyr and was declared innocent. The archbishop who read out the final decision talked about the trial and sentence having been, quote, tainted with fraud, calumny, iniquity and contradiction and manifest errors of fact and law, to have been and to be null, invalid, worthless, without effect and annihilated. Again, during the revolution, Notre Dame, in common with all the other churches, had a very difficult time. Many of them were burned down. Notre Dame, thankfully, wasn't, although it was badly damaged. Revolutionaries stole the statues and decapitated them, for example. They took a lot of other things from the inside of the church. They had all the bells, bar one, melted down, and they took to calling it the Temple of Reason, just to show how anti the idea of religion they were. It went through various phases during the revolution, being used as a warehouse, being a place where people stabled their horses. But again, Napoleon to the rescue, 1805, he decided when he was going to have himself crowned as emperor that he would use Notre Dame for this grand event. Great elaborate ceremony was held. Ceremonial uniforms for all the gentlemen, new gowns for the ladies. Josephine is there, wearing a fur-trimmed velvet cloak and a long train. Napoleon and Josephine started out in the Tuileries Gardens and they processed to Notre Dame so that mass could be said. And then Napoleon, who had invited the Pope, decided that actually the Pope wasn't going to crown him. He was going to crown himself. So he took a crown of laurel leaves, turned away from the Pope and put it on his head himself, sending quite a message that this was an empire over which he ruled. His next move was to get Josephine to kneel down in front of him so that he could place a crown on her head too. As so often, many people were taken in by this, but Napoleon's mother wasn't. She's said to have not arrived. She made a point of not arriving in Paris until all of this was finished. And apparently, when people referred to her son of how famous he was and how much glory he had, she inevitably used to reply, Ah yes, provided it lasts. The rest of the 19th century saw more problems for Notre Dame. In the 1840s, it was quite dilapidated. There was talk of pulling it down. But in fact, there was a campaign to save it, led by someone you will almost certainly have heard of, the novelist Victor Hugo. He of Les Miserables fame, of course. He was a huge fan of Gothic architecture and really felt it should be protected. And he wrote his book, Notre Dame de Paris, known in English as The Hunchback of Notre Dame, in 1829, actually partly at least, to make everybody aware of the beauty of the architecture and how important they were. I enjoyed the comment on Wikipedia, actually, which said, which said, quote, This explains the large descriptive sections of the book, which far exceed the requirements of the story. So be warned if you decide to go and read it. It is a marvellous daring-do tale of love and jealousy and abandoned children and abducted young women. And you can read it and enjoy it just for that, or you can read it particularly with an eye to what you can learn about the Paris of the time. It's set in the 15th century and is full, as the Wikipedia comment indicated, of descriptions of the city and descriptions of Notre Dame particularly. Let me just read you a little extract from the book itself. Quasimodo, the hunchback bell ringer of Notre Dame, has climbed up, reached the summit 
and this is what he sees when he gets there. Quote, he was bedazzled by roofs, chimneys, streets, bridges, squares, spires and bell towers. Everything struck him at once, the carved gable, the pointed roof, the turret suspended from the corner of the walls, the stone pyramid from the 11th century, the slate obelisk from the 15th, the bare round tower of the castle keep, the decorated square tower of the church, the big, the small, the massive and the ethereal. The eye was being held long at every level of this labyrinth, where there was nothing which did not have its own originality, its own reason, its own genius, its own beauty, nothing that did not belong to the art of architecture. More trouble then in the 1870s, when, as we know, the communards took against religion and churches in general, burned many of them down, although in fact not Notre Dame, it's thought in fact that maybe the popularity of Victor Hugo's novel had contributed to this and meant that somehow people were willing to accept that church even if they didn't want to accept many of the others. The building may have survived, but some of the cathedral clergy didn't because they were executed. Moving into the 20th century then, there are a number of dates which are very significant in French history and which were celebrated or marked right here in Notre Dame. As an aside, in fact, 1909 was the date when Joan of Arc was finally canonised, so her retrial had taken place 450 years earlier, but 1909 was the date she was made a saint. 1918, in November, a Te Deum was held for the armistice at the end of the First World War, and ten years after that, the funeral was held in Notre Dame of Maréchal Foch, French World War General. Second World War II was marked here, in 1944, there was a Magnificat sung for the liberation of the city. General de Gaulle was present at that, and it's said that shots were heard even during the ceremony. A year after that, in 1945, when the war officially came to an end, the German capitulation was celebrated, in Notre Dame at least, by a Te Deum. In 1970, after the death of General de Gaulle, it was here that the Requiem Mass for him was said. So you can see that all through history, it really is the place to which people turn when there's something massive to be marked or celebrated or for which prayers of thanks should be said. For all of those reasons then, as soon as it reopens, I'm sure people will want to go back and see it. And just a very quick rundown of things to look out for, things which I imagine will still be there. Again, very much without getting lost in the detail. So from the outside... The Great West Front is very much to be enjoyed, that magnificent facade that you see, for example, if you're looking east from the Pont Neuf or if you're travelling down the Seine in a boat. The two rose windows, huge round stained glass windows, very famous. That would be the North Rose, which is a dominantly blue colour and which has pictures of the Virgin in the middle and the 24 Old Testament subjects sitting all around her. And when you look at that, the stained glass in that is the original stained glass made in the 13th century. The other rose window is known as the south window. That's pictures of Christ surrounded by his apostles. Inside, over half of the choir stalls are the original ones commissioned by Louis Fourteenth. There's a treasury with ancient manuscripts in it, old reliquaries, and the two absolute highlights of that being the crown of thorns and something known as a piece of the true cross, which were, if you remember from last episode, two relics brought back from his crusading days by King Louis, and for which he built Sainte-Chapelle. They were stored there originally, but then they were moved 
to the Cathedral of Notre Dame. The towers, you can go, or you used to be able to go up the towers. I dare say that will be possible again once it's been restored. And for that, for the climb that that will entail, you are rewarded with close-up views of some of the gargoyles and the angels up there. And you will also see the only bell, the Emmanuel bell, which survived the revolution. It was forged in 1685, all 13 tons of it. The only one that wasn't melted down by the revolutionaries, and which then, of course, is seen as extra precious. It's not rung very often. It's rung at Christmas, I think. It's rung whenever there's something momentous happening in Paris. For example, if you remember the attacks on the journalists from the Charlie Hebdo magazine in 2015, 12 of them were shot dead by Islamic terrorists. In the aftermath of that, when many world leaders came to Paris to mourn with the Parisians and to speak up for freedom of the press, that was an occasion when the Emmanuel Bell was rung. So that's yet another reminder that this building, La Cathédrale de Notre-Dame, really is occupying a very special place right in the heart of Paris, in the heart of Parisians. Indeed, I noticed that in the rough guide, it's described as, quote, the symbolic heart of France. Actually, that's a description which would apply to either of the two cathedrals that we've dealt with today, I think, wouldn't it? Either Saint-Denis or Notre-Dame. So that brings this episode to a close. And I'd just like to mention that next week, in episode four, we're off to Versailles, that most flamboyant palace just outside city centre Paris, built by Louis XIV, emulated by so many other rulers across Europe. I think it generally works out that although they tried to outdo him, they usually failed. And so it really is a must-see. So we'll have a look at a little bit of the history connected with the palace, a rundown of some of the main things to see when you go there, and definitely a chance to have a look as well at France's most flamboyant king, the inimitable Louis XIV. So I hope you'll be joining me for that. And meanwhile, I would just like to thank you very much for listening. Merci bien. And to look forward to your company next week. À la semaine prochaine. Au revoir.